Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you, family. How are you doing tonight? Blessed, better than we deserve? Amen. 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 All right, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. We've come as far as uh, Moses continues to speak. Um, we're really coming to the, uh, really at chapter 26, we'll sort of get to that place where God has had us, specifically Moses, as he was giving this to the children of Israel. Uh, chapters 4 through 26 sort of are cataloged together uniquely in the commandments and statutes and judgments that God was giving to Moses. And as we get to the end of chapter 26, it's not that we don't have additional uh, details that God wants to give to the people of Israel, but as we look at the commandments, if we could put it that way, or the statutes that would fall in that, it really is between chapters 4 and 26. So we're, we're really coming close to that bookend here. So let's uh, bow our heads, we'll pray, and then we'll begin our study this evening. Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, for all that you do, for your wonderful heart and the way you, you just comfort us and the way you uh, teach us through your word, Lord, the way you just Lord, show us in, a, in our own hearts and the ability to examine ourselves, to know, Lord God, just how we're walking. Are we holy? Are we set apart? Are we, are we uh, like-minded in unity with you, God? Or, Lord, is it the, the flesh that tries to, once again, steal our joy? And, and, Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us so much, that you've given us your spirit to dwell within us and to uh, purify us, to keep us holy and cleansed and and Lord, now let your word just wash us here tonight, Lord. We pray we would just be washed and cleansed by the renewing, Lord. And God, thank you. Just thank you for the privilege to gather in your name, Jesus Christ. We all pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you want to go ahead and put the... Oh, uh, you know what? Keep the screen down because I'm going to have a present. I'm going to show you a picture here in a moment. So forgive me for the screen being down, but it'll make sense in a minute because... We're going to go into a particular passage where I think it'll help to show this, you know, Tara and the family tree, because God's going to call our attention back to that when he describes Assyrian. So some people come to that, but Assyrian, what does that mean? So we'll come to that, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 25. If there's a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they test and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked... Then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. What's, what's he describing? He's describing that the punishment, right, should fit the crime. He's, you know, many people, when they look at God and, and they begin to read much of the Old Testament, they say, well, it's a different God between the Old Testament and the Testament. No, it, no, it is not. It's the same God. He's the Ancient of Days. That's not what we learn here. What we begin to see is God's presence and what he most, most of the time, you know, the idea of, you know, the eyes and the teeth and we come back and we, you know, eye for eye, you know, what he was doing is limiting. He was limiting the ability of punishment that would be placed. He was not certainly exhorting that. So he's going to do the same thing here. He's saying 40 blows he may give him and no more. Just the compassion that even on the wrongdoing, God shows compassion even in our, our wickedness, even in our judgment, God shows, even in that he shows compassion because for whom he loves, he corrects. Lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. He says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Again, compassion not only for an individual, but also for the beast, the beast that's working, that's going through and with that stone, walking in that circle, that's treading out the grain, that's splitting the kernels that will then once, you know, be winnowed and lifted up as the air would separate the chaff from the wheat that will then be gathered and the chaff will be what? Burned in the fire. God's giving us not only a picture, but we also read this in 1 Corinthians 9, 9. It also speaks to what? That in ministry, you know, that is it saying that for those that are working, for those that are doing the work of ministry, that they, they should be fed. They should be cared for that way, right? We shouldn't muzzle the ox. And that's a beautiful principle. And those that are here that have a, a supervisory positions or you have opportunities to, you know, God's entrusted you with people that work under you or with you, what an opportunity to be able to turn around and to be able to take care of them as God has called you to, right? It's not just ministry. It's, it's in anything to be faithful to those that God entrusts in your care. I just think what a beautiful, beautiful exhortation again, compassion, right? If brothers dwell together 
and one of them dies. Now we're moving into some, <laughs> what we'll call the, the, the Leverite marriage, right? That idea coming from the Septuagint translation from there into the Latin. We, that's how we get the Leverite. It's the translation here. But as we come in, as we look, at it, it's very interesting. The idea is as if your brother, uh, for whatever reason, loses his life. He's no longer alive. He did not have any children, right? Uh, his wife is still alive, and there's no one to carry the seed or the line or his surname that way, right? What God had designed that, the, again, inheritance was very important because of the tribes and the inheritance of land and everything that would be passed down that way for Israel. He says, if that's not the case, he says, the husband should go into the wife so that he would procreate, that that line would continue on, right? Today, we don't practice the, the Leverite marriage, but, but the idea is that there are still some that very much that practice this today, actually. There are still some uh, Jews and Orthodox Jews that practice this, not only in Israel, but I can remember even in Munsee in the area of New York, where I, I spent some time, there was quite a population near Nanuet, and they would still practice some of these Levitical or these, what I'll call Leverite marriage. If a brother dwells together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow to the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside of the family. Again, it's inheritance, passing that down, right? Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, this has to be done willingly, by the way. This is something that has to be done willingly. It shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name his dead brother, right? That his name may not be blouted out of Israel. We start to see the exact purpose. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let the brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her. We don't know why. You know, maybe she couldn't cook. I, I don't know what the reason is. But for whatever the reason is, he, he thought he should not take her. The, the elders at the gate are trying to persuade in some ways and say, look, this is your brother's wife. You should do this because you're going to continue the inheritance, the line. You should do this. This is the right thing to do here. But... Again, as God does much, as we see, he doesn't, he's a gentleman. He never forces himself, never forces himself. And so the, the, the husband, this, this gentleman here, he can come and say, you know what? I don't want to do this. We're not told why. He doesn't say, you know, is it greed? Maybe he knows because he has a son with his wife that um, if the brother's you know, wife never has a child, there's no splitting of an inheritance, Maybe it's greed he doesn't want to do this. We, we really don't know. Whatever the cause is, he, he comes back and says, you know, I don't want to do it. I don't want to take her. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot. Just think about this for a minute. I, I just wait. What did, what did Moses say? As you come, everywhere your, the foot of your soul shall touch, uh, God shall give you, right? So it's significant that it's the, the foot, you know, the shoe of the foot that way, that way, excuse me. So he says, look, you take the shoe off, and then what are you going to do? The next most, you know, humiliating or disrespectful thing, you spit in his face, literally, and you're required to do that. She's to spit in his face and answer and say, so it shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. You didn't just willy-nilly not go through this, right? It had to be a really good reason that you're not going to be, you know, taking this woman and marrying her, right? To go through this whole procedure, right? And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed, right? Real unique, real original there. All right, now we're going to move into some more of a, you know, different laws here. If two men fight together, I don't know why. You know, I've heard many scholars, many people, we really don't know the answer to why these uh, two verses are here. Uh, sort of wish they weren't, but um, God, God has put them in there for some reason. If two men fight together and a wife, one, a wife of one draws near to rescue her husband, nothing wrong with that, I guess, from the hand of one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals. Okay, so now I, I'm like, okay, so what's happening here? I don't think I need to draw the picture. The idea is uh, you got a tough wife, right? Maybe she's like real tough. You're getting whooped on. She, just laying it out, you're getting whooped on. She comes over and uh, she takes matters into her own hands, literally. 
and just does something that's not good, right? And I don't know, it was the possibility scholars are arguing that because they're trying to make sense of this. They're coming back and they're saying, um, is it sterility? You know, you'd become sterile. Maybe, maybe that was the reason. We, we don't know. Because then again, it being that we just talked about inheritance and the passing down to the family, it could be in context, sterility, you know, if something like that happened. Uh, I don't know. Um, we really, I don't know. I don't have, we have to talk to the Lord about that. I don't, I don't have an answer for this. I, I don't know how to make any more sense out of that. Um, then you shall cut off her hand and your eye shall not pity her. Uh, pretty heavy. That's a pretty, it seems pretty, um, pretty heavy, you know, in light of what's going on here. You shall not have in your house differing measures and large. So I'm just going to keep moving on. You shall not have in your house differing measures of large and small. What are we talking about? Weights and measures, right? The idea that, um, uh, you know, you think about much of a barter system back in the day. Uh, it wasn't as today where we exchange currency and different things like that. They would go in, and um, if you were to take uh, an epaph of flour or something like that, and you were going to measure that out maybe with um, um, something else, some other meal or some other type of grain or something like that, what he was saying is that you don't have two different weights, right? A weight in which you use when you sell, and then a weight in which you use when you buy, right? The, so that you get the upper hand of the deal here. He's saying, look, deal fairly and honestly. He's talking about integrity here. He says, deal fairly and honestly with your brother, right? Isn't it sad that he, he has to actually write this in here? It's sad. You shall not have it, right? Uh, a bag differing weights, heavy and light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, large and small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that their days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And certainly not cheating and having integrity is going to do that, right? Because you begin to cheat people, it will catch up with you, right? It will catch up with you. It always does. Some people, oh, I haven't seen judgment. Oh, God's just being long-suffering, but... But certainly, there's no one that escapes that. God sees everything, everything we do, every matter we handle, every affair that comes into our discretion. God is constantly watching and seeing that, and he wants us to deal justly and honestly with that, and justly and honestly with other folks as well. You know, I know of a story that I've heard that, you know, um, gentleman came in, he had two different size weights, you know, again, one that he would go out and he would measure, and he would say, I use that same weight in what I sell, and what I buy. That way, if somebody gives me a pound of what they would say is an ephah of flour, and they want to barter with me and want some other product, I'll take that flour that they gave me that's supposed to be what? A pound, and I'll put that on the other side of the scale, and I'll give them that same quantity of product. Well, what happens? The individual goes home and says, I was cheated. But he didn't think about the fact that he actually cheated his brother. Hence the problem, right? Do you see the issue here? We're so quickly to point out someone else's sin, but not quickly to recognize our own. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, that's how he categorizes it, are an abomination to the Lord your God. That's serious. Integrity serious to God. Not cheating, not deceiving, coming with a pure heart before God is very important. It's very important to the Lord. Now we're going to be looking at a section where he goes in and he's going to start to talk about Amalek, who is a type of the flesh, as we read. He says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, Now, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the sta uh, stragglers, right, those women and children may be a little slower in the back. He's basically saying they picked them off. When you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, please. Exodus chapter 17, we're going to look here. Right around verse 8. Is this not what God had already once spoken about? Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Now Amalek, from the Amalekites, came and fought with Israel in Rephidim, right? Remember that, where the water had come from the rock? 
And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men to go out and fight with Amalek. Right? Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up on the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became very heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands on one side and on the other. And on the other side, and his hands were steady until going down to the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial, for a memorial in the book, and recount it at the hearing of Joshua that I may utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. He was speaking to the first generation of the children at this time. You remember that? So what did God effectively just do in chapter 5, verses 17 through 19? He told those children, the next generation, that will now actually be going into the promised land because their mothers and fathers died in the wilderness for disbelief. If you remember, that was the sin. It was a sin of disbelief. Only Joshua and Caleb, the, the next generation. He's reminding them God's promises are true. And God doesn't forget unless he chooses to forget. And I want you to think about what he chooses to forget for a minute. Our sin. He says, as far as the east is from the west. It's amazing when you think about it. It's amazing. Well, near back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 here. He says, look, you shall not forget. And you can go if you want. You can even look at 1 Samuel 15 really quickly if you'd like to see how this plays out. 1 Samuel 15 Look at verses 1 through 9 here. And you can go back and you can look. He says, look, you know, he went out to meet Saul, went to Carmel. He goes through the whole thing. And he said, verse 5, well, I guess I'll start at the beginning, just for time, it's fine. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint your king of his people over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. So we actually see it happening now. God's actually carrying out the promise that he had already said would be. For what he did to Israel, how he ambushed them on the way he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek. He tells it to Saul, the first king. And utterly destroy all that, all that they have and do not spare them. Notice that he says, but both kill man, woman, and infant, nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Very specific, everything. So, God, so Saul gathered the people get together and numbered them and tell him, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Canaanites, go depart yet down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah or Havilah, all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Now, wait a minute. What happened there? What was Saul supposed to do? What did God command Saul to do? He was to kill him. We already see he's Saul the king, the first king. We already see him beginning to walk contrary, doing what's right in his eyes, doing what he thinks was right. And that's a direct challenge to God's authority. That's a problem. So he was supposed to kill him. So he also took him. And he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people. Now what happens? When you have a leader and somebody doesn't walk and honor God, what does that do? Sin spreads. And they begin to see the people now follow in this same pattern. And now he's led the people in that, right? Because they spared Agag. And what else did they spare? The best of the sheep and the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. So, in other words, what Saul couldn't use, uh, yeah, we'll follow God. But what Saul put value in? Oh, no, wait a minute. No, maybe God doesn't really mean that. All right, let's bring it to us right now today. We're more than happy to follow God's commandments and statutes when they appease us or there's comfort in it, right? I can do that. But what about when it's difficult? What about when it... It could cause uh, severe economic discomfort in your home to do the right thing. Or uh, you have to make choices at your employment and your job because you see something that's 
nefarious or not going on according to God and his standard, and you say, you know what, no, I, I can't work for an employer that's going to embezzle money or funds. You know, but that's your job. That, that's your livelihood. What, what are you going to do? Many times we're going to face these choices in our lives, don't we? We face these choices of right and wrong, righteousness compared to not living according to God's words and commandments. It's not just when it's easy. It's not just when it's convenient. God's showing us here, and if you, we read further, what happens to Saul? Because of his disobedience, Saul is removed, and the Spirit of God will be removed from him. Now, we know as we studied last Sunday, the Spirit of God, it's not like under the New Covenant where the Spirit of God is in us, with us, right? And epi, or EPA, if we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, upon us, right? All three, all the time. In the Old Testament, it came upon, like Saul, for a task, for a time period, or for working. But it wasn't, the Holy, he wasn't constantly with them that way, right? That's what we read in our Bible. So it's interesting. The, the Spirit of God is removed from Saul, and you know, he doesn't even notice it. Because what was Saul doing? Saul was striving. Saul wasn't listening to God. Saul wasn't following God's commandments and statutes. He didn't even know because it was all Saul in his flesh. You know, that's one of the tests, you know, that I look at in fruit in my own life, is if God has commanded me to do something, and I continue to purse because I really think it's right, even if it's compassionate or it's the right thing to do, but God hasn't commanded it, and it just seems well with my soul, but, but God didn't directly confirm it in the Word of God. Am I willing to push forward in direct disobedience to God? See, those are hard those are hard decisions. And the answer is very simple, though. Obey God. God desires obedience more than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, 22, right? So we see this here, and it's, a, it's just a, a good example. This is why God doesn't forget, because once again, it's a sin of disobedience. And God doesn't take that lightly. Now we'll move into chapter 26 here, okay? And he's going to be talking about the first fruits and tithes. I just, I just want to go ahead and look. There, I think we, we've talked about this a couple times in different passages. The Word of God speaks it. We're going to speak it. We know 2 Corinthians 9 describes a cheerful giver. We understand that. If you don't, I encourage you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, read verses 6 through 8. It describes what a cheerful giver is. God certainly wants that. I also believe God today very much wants us to bring our first fruits. I think most of us can agree on those two things because the Word of God says it. However, Biblically speaking, we are not under a system of tithe. We do not implement a system of tithe at this church. That doesn't mean that individuals here, by God's leading, haven't turned around and invoked a tithe that they felt like the Lord has brought to them. Do you understand the difference? The church invoking a tithe where we say, this is what you do. We're going to send you an envelope. You better put 10% in it every week. And then every third year, it needs to be up to 27%. And don't forget the temple tax. That needs to be 32%. So we don't do that. We don't, we're not under a law. We're under grace. We don't turn around and, because God has always been after the heart. Right? It's not a percentage. It's, God doesn't come to you and say, I just want 10% of your heart. No, he wants 100% of your heart. You know, I I. I kind of joked around before. I said, look, you know, if you're, if you make $10,000 a year and you have to give $1,000, that's a lot, isn't it? That, that's a lot. That's a lot to ask any individual today as, as expensive and, you know, housing and food and everything is, that's a lot to ask an individual to do. Now, if you have $200 million and you give me 10% or the church 10% of that as an example, what am I going to say? Are you being a cheerful giver? I don't know. I'm not going to say anything. You get the point. Give us hundred million, right? We want half. I think that's fair. You get the point. It's relative to the heart, right? It's, it's, out, of, it's out of your first fruits. It's out of your, but that's between you and Jesus. God's not bankrupt. God's not bankrupt. I'm so tired of hearing people say, well, if you don't give this, then God can't do that. And the, the God, his work won't. What, where do we read that in our Bible? My, my God's got cattle on a thousand hills. He's not, I often look at what God does in ministry by the giving. Sometimes we might have, okay, Lord, we'd like to support this missionary. We want to do these things. And, and God directs us with that because where God guides, he provides. And there's moments of where we don't see the provision and we have to stop and pray as a church leadership and say, Lord, is this you telling us that maybe we're not supposed to go in this direction or support this? 
And it's so amazing how God moves on the, you know, we did that security project here, remember that? It's the only time I think we ever brought something to the fellowship and said, hey, we really need help. This is important, it's security. And the way God provided, I mean, I, I go home and I would see, you know, I don't see who gives what, but I'd go home and, and I'm just like, Lord, you care so much about your people and you stir the hearts of the believer just at the right time, Lord. You, you just do it. And it wasn't about a rule and it wasn't about a law and it wasn't ritualistic. It was worship. And all of you that partook of that, that was your worship and God saw that and that's your first fruits and it's, it's beautiful. So that's what God is laying out here. That's what God is laying out in the new covenant. That's what we believe. We're under covenant of grace. It's hilarious giving. But under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God had put a, a, a tithe in place. And by the way, the tithe was the minimum, actually. The tenth was the minimum. And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground. That's your first fruits which you shall bring from your land to the Lord your God who is giving you, right? Nothing new. Numbers 18, 12. He's already showed us this before. And put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide in Jerusalem eventually. And you shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord, right? God, what is, what is an altar for? An altar's for worship. An altar's a throne. It's worship. This, is, this was worship. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a Syrian about to perish. What just happened? Some of you were tracking. You're like, I'm good. I understand. We put the basket. We put it before the priest. And now he's mentioned a Syrian. Who's the Syrian? Right? Who is he talking to? He's talking about Jacob. Well, pastor, how do we know you're talking about? Can you bring up the... Slide, please. I'd like you to see. I was just going back through it. I, I looked for one online. Uh, it's probably hard for some of you to read, but, you know, Terry, you can see. You, you remember, they, you know, or the Chaldees, and they came out of that. So it's interesting. As you go back and study this, Genesis chapter 2520, if you'll turn there with me quick. Genesis chapter 2520. We read... About Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as a wife. Now, where was Rebekah? Where were they leaving? With Laban, right? Her brother. And where was Laban? Rebekah and Laban. Right? When he took Rebekah's wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. So here's what we see here a couple things. The first thing we see is that Jacob. Jacob's mom was a Syrian. So he, if you want to say this, he, he was, though he was born in Canaan, he was, a, he was a Syrian by descent, right? He was, because of his mother, Rebecca, and his grandfather, Abraham, right? The Chaldees, because they were in the area of Mesopotamia. And um, so we understand that to be Assyrians, right? But if you want to see another good play, turn to Hosea. Hosea chapter 12, verse 12. Hosea chapter 12, verse 12. We read that Jacob actually went, where did he go? He went back to his mother's, remember that? He went back to his mother's family, his mother's kin, to find himself Leah and Rachel. To, well, he went originally to find a wife, Rachel, that he thought he was going to be marrying. And then obviously, we, you know what happened there. Laban had given him uh, Leah first, Leah first, and then obviously he waited, served longer for Rachel, right? So if you look in chapter 12 of Hosea 12, what's it say? Jacob fled to the country of Syria. Israel served for a spouse, and for a wife he tended sheep. But, a prophet, but by a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet he was preserved. Right? You can turn back. So this is clearly talking about here, my father. Who's my father? Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, specifically Jacob here. My father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number. 
And there he became a nation, great and mighty and populous. Do you remember that when God brought Jacob and his father because, well, sorry, Jacob, when Jacob himself went down because his son, Joseph, made a request that his dad would come because Benjamin, he says, bring your dad if you want to see Benjamin, basically, again, right, like that whole thing to his brothers. They went back. They said, Dad, you need to come down with us. Jacob makes the trip down. Where does God end up putting them? Well, do you remember specifically what happened? He put him in Goshen. That's right, Goshen. And do you know why he was put in Goshen? It was the most, one of the most fertile choice lands. Do you remember what Egypt thought of shepherds? The Habarabi. If you remember the Habarabi, and you know the tradition behind that, they thought they were dirty. They, they were just, you know, nothing to do with them. They were a sort of a below class. So when they come to Egypt because of Pharaoh and because of the work of Joseph, he says, wherever your family wants to go right there in Goshen, you know, God directed them to the most fertile and choice land, and he gave them that because he didn't want them to dwell close to the rest of Egypt because at that point they were their shepherds, which is what we talked about last week, if you remember. I said, I think it was either Sunday or last week when I was mentioning, we're watching Israel make a transition from nomadic people as shepherds into what? Agrarians. They're becoming agricultural in nature. Fruits and produce. That's why he goes through and starts explaining. When there's vine, leave certain things. When you beat the grapes, leave the, gra- you know, the olives, excuse me. When you beat the olives, leave some down there for other people to come and the poor. And that was his idea of a social system. So that's what, we, that's what he's kind of talking about here. He's saying, look, when he went down to Egypt, he dwelt there, few in number, and he became a great nation, mighty and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us and laid hard bondage on us. And they did that. Do you remember how long? 400 years, roughly, right? 400 years. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard the voice, and he looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. Wait a minute. Do you mean God's people can be oppressed? I mean, all that we hear and see today, it seems like God's people should never be oppressed according to the faith and prosperity gospel. I mean, if you're listening to some of these TV, you know, evangelists, look in your Bible. At te- uh, you don't have to lie, I'll just tell you. 2 Timothy 3, chapter 12, right? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what does he say? Will suffer persecution, right? We shouldn't be surprised. The word of God calibrates us. It tells us what we ought to expect. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand he delivered. And with an outstretched arm, with a great terror, and with signs and wonders, and he has brought us up to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I've brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me, that then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And that hasn't changed. Under the new covenant, we are to bring our first fruits, and it is to be worshiped. It's not out of obligation. We're no longer under a new, uh, the old covenant. We're, we're under a new covenant, a better covenant, Amen. a covenant of free will. And we ought to want to do these things. We ought to want to bring our first fruits, and we ought to want to worship God. That's what he's saying here. So you shall what? Rejoice. So you shall rejoice. What's that sound like to you? You should be a hilarious guy. You should be happy. You should have joy, right? You shouldn't turn around, oh, woe is me. I have got to do this. You should have joy in your heart. In every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you in your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who's among you, right? When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase, now we come to a a verse here, verse 12, really not sure what to do with this. Uh, You know, I read many of the scholars. I've looked and I've searched on this. Look, you need to be Bereans. I'm not entirely sure about this. Uh, because it describes here uh, a tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and you have been given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and to the widow. Is it describing a separate tithe that every third year was to be given in Israel, and then that tithe was to be dedicated to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow? Or is it saying that it's the regular tithe that was to be given as normal, but then on that third year it was redesignated? rather than to the sanctuary, to the priest, to all that God would do, right? Um, I'm really not sure. Like I said, all I know, what what the Word of God tells me, is that we're to bring our first fruits and we're to be hilarious givers. I don't know what this is in context. Again, I've searched. I I don't know what to make of this. Um, Just transparently before you, I don't. 
Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments, which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them, right? What do we see here? A willingness to be obedient, right? Lordship. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for unclean use, nor given any of it from the... What's he talking about? He's saying the worship that I was bringing you, I didn't use it for things that were unholy or unclean. I didn't use it for things that would defile. Why is he saying that? Because remember, they're going into the promised land where the Canaanites are doing what? They're creating defilement all over the place with their worship to their pagan gods. He says, I don't want you to be like them. These first fruits, this holiness, this is set apart. When you bring this, you're not bringing this and then using a portion of that, right? Don't bring that. You know, I've said it before. If, if there's somebody in a, a prostitution racket or ring or something like that, uh, please, you know, you don't bring the money like that into the house of God. You know, that, that's not what it's talking about here. He's saying that, that you're not to remove any of it, unclean use, not, not giving any of it for the daddy. He, he seems to be describing these pagan Canaanite practices that were already going on. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you've commanded me, right? Look down from your holy habitation from heaven. That gives me great comfort. You know, as we're gathered here tonight, Jesus Christ is looking down on his holy habitation. And bless your people, Israel, and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. And what I, what I come to the conclusion in reading those passages is a right heart in giving is a blessing for the people. That's what I see here. This day, the Lord your God commands, notice that, you to observe the statutes and the judgments just or excuse me, therefore you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. What is he talking about? Remember I mentioned earlier when he's talking about, when did he first say this? You can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Quickly, if you look back there, he start, this is when Moses began. Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments, right in verse 1, which I teach you to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God, your fathers, is giving you. And then he went through and we read chapter 5 and, you know, all the way through 26. And now he's taking and he's bookending it. He's bookending it. Moses is saying at this point, these are the commandments. These are the statutes in which the Lord your God has given you, not us, but Israel. Israel, right? We, we don't want to be replacement theology here. Israel had gotten these promises, these blessings that way, these commandments and statutes. And he says, I've given this to you, right? That you would observe them with all your heart, and it would be well with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. I want you to think about this. Very, very important. Verse 17 in a, in a sidebar on your Bible, please write chapter 28. Because when we get to chapter 28, and we're going to read halfway through chapter 28, God is going to prophesy about what's going to happen to the siege in Jerusalem that will occur in A.D. 70. God already knew. God was warning them. He was pleading with them, obey, follow my commandments and statutes. Write that in the margin so as we get there, you'll remember as a kind of a footnote or a chain reference to look over there. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments. I want you to think about that. Are we God's special people? What does 1 Peter tell us, 2.9? Right? Look, look in your Bibles. Hold your, hold your finger here and turn to 1 Peter, please. In your New Testament, you've got to the book of 1 John. You've gone too far. 1 Peter Let's look at, let's back up here. Let's back up to 4, verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. 
You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through, notice that, through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion, this is Isaiah chapter 28, 16, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will no means by put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, in other words, disbelievers, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being a disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you as a chosen generation, who's he talking to? He's talking to new covenant believers. You as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, yes, you are, a holy nation, his own, what does he say here? Special people. You see that? That you, may pro- that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness in the smartest light. And just in case you didn't think he was comparing that to what we read in the Old Testament a minute ago, in verse 10 he makes it crystal clear. He says, who were once not a people. So he's not talking to the Jew or in, in the particular ca- context. He's not comparing the Jew to the Gentile. He, he, he's saying, you Gentile, who were not a people. Because the Jew we just read was a what? They're his chosen people. They always will be. They're God's special and chosen people. They're precious, right? But he says, who you were not of, but you now are a people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. We are a special people before God. We've been weaving in, grafted in, Jew and Gentile alike. And Paul warns us we ought to be careful not to ever get prideful or think more highly in ourselves than we ought. Because why? Because simply, just like that Jew, that for the stumbling block that Israel had rejected the chosen one, the Messiah, that they had longed and awaited, we too can look to ourselves and think more of ourselves than we ought and forget that it was Jesus that did the saving. It's Jesus that does the sanctifying through his word, right? But not only his word. The heart that he gave us. He gave us a new heart. He gave us a new nature. We no longer desire after the Egypt and the old things. He made it possible. He put the thoughts in our mind. Just like we read in Jeremiah 31, what one day will be futuristic for the Jew, you and I have already received today in the new covenant. We've talked about that. It's it's wonderful. Well, you, you can turn back to chapter 26. So he says, he's speaking to Israel. He says, just as I promised that you, that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all the nations which he has made in praise and name and honor, that you may be a holy, holy people, not, not, a, not a holy, <laughs> a holy people, to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. So I want you to think about this for a minute. What does obedience result in? It results in blessing. That's exactly right. Obeying God results in blessings. Chapter 27. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of what? This law. What is he saying? You shall write on them the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, specifically chapters 4 through what? Chapter 26, like we just talked about. You shall write that on these stones with lime, right? They're going to be whitewashed. That you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal, do you know what Mount Ebal means? It means barren. It means barren in the Hebrew. Mount Ebal, okay, so when you have crossed over on that mount of barrenness, you shall set up these stones which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. What he's going to lay out for us here in a little bit, in verses 11 on, he's going to go through and describe what will happen when they walk into this promised land. They're going to see two mountains. Gersom on one side, where the blessings will be called out, and then as we just read, uh, Mount Ebal on the other side, where um, the curses will be called out. And in between that, in the bottom of that, in that valley, you have that area of Shechem. And today, that's known as the what? The West Bank. 
that, that area of the West Bank. But this is what he's laying out. And they're literally going to be yelling across to each other. This is very, very important why he's doing this. And then their response is to say what? So be it. Amen, they're going to yell. And he's going to, they're, so they're going to be voicing. He's going to break the tribes up in two. He says, you're going to go over there, and you're going to yell the blessings. And if you do it this way, amen, they're all going to say. And then he's going to set the other ones up on uh, Mount Ebal, and they're going to be yelling back the curses. Hey, if you don't follow God, you're not obedient. And then we're going to lead into chapter 28. And halfway through chapter 28, really, uh, right around verse, I think it's uh, 36 or somewhere in there, right around that area, he's going to then turn from what he's stating to go into the prophetic nature of what will happen. You really can't miss it. You, you won't be able to miss it. So let's, let's continue on here. But I just set in the scene of what, what's happening. And I want you to, to remember Mount Ebal is about 35 miles north of Jerusalem. Not that far away where we're talking about, okay? He says, so listen, therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set these stones which I command you today and they shall whitewash them with lime. They're going to remember it, right? And you know what's so cool? In Joshua, well, turn turn to Joshua. Turn to Joshua chapter 8. Look at this. This is awesome. Just so cool how God, you can't deny, you can't deny God's moving. Archaeologists several years ago, as they were in that area, 35 miles, they were near Mount Ebal, they had uncovered an actual altar there. They believe it's this altar that altar that's going to be built. Now, what side is the altar going to be built on? The side of blessing or the side of curse? It's going to be on the side of curse. Why? Because you need repentance, and they're going to have to make sacrifice for their sin. God even provides a way. Now, wait a minute. Didn't he do that in the new covenant? For all you and I, because all have fallen short of the glory of God, what was the way that he did? He provided his son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Right? It's beautiful. I mean, you can just see it. You can't miss it here. So look at um, Joshua chapter 8. Look at verse 30. Now Joshua built an altar. I'm sort of skipping ahead here, but just so you see, to the Lord, to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. That's why we believe, and the archaeologists that have dug this up and found this, believe this is the actual altar that Joshua built. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it's written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. Do you remember reading that? Neil? What did that mean? That had not been touched by man or defiled, pure and holy. What is that showing us? That's showing us a system of grace because it wasn't something a man strived for. It was something God did in grace. And that's exactly, that's exactly what God did when he redeemed us. That's what he did when he delivered Israel so that nobody could look back and go, my fingerprints are on it. Because the tool that I wielded made this. Nothing like it. It's only the essence and fingerprints of God. They were to lift them up and put these stones there. No, no object, no iron tool was to be used. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Do you see that? Sacrifices for sin. And there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law which Moses had written. What is he talking about? Deuteronomy, what we just read. He's going to write that. He's going to put that right in the presence so that they would never forget because it's so significant, the prophecy he's about to give them to tell them that you will go into this captivity, this siege, and it will be like nothing you've ever experienced, and it doesn't have to be that way if you obey. And in their presence, the children of Israel wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all of Israel, with their elders and official judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant, and the stranger, as well as those who had been born among them. Half of them were what? In front of Mount Gerizim, and the other half on Mount Evil. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, he had commanded before that they should bless all the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law and the blessings and the cursings according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, the strangers who were living among them. All heard the word of God. All knew. Because the word of God transforms. It does the work in the heart. It doesn't return void. All right, you can turn back. Just... Some interesting information for you there, but 
He says, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall not use an iron tool on them. We just read that in Joshua when they actually go through and complete that. You shall build up, or you shall build with whole stones the altar, the Lord your God, and offer burnt offerings on it. Why would you offer burnt offerings? What are burnt offerings for? We remember when we covered that, the, the different offerings burn Sin, it's for sin, right? Why is it on Mount Ebal? Because of the barrenness. And what's being preached from Mount Ebal? What is he telling them to yell out? The curses, the disobedience, the things wrong. You shall offer peace offerings and you shall eat there. And what should you do? Rejoice. As new covenant believers, what ought we to do? Choose joy. We ought to rejoice. Right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Always. That's beautiful. He says, rejoice before the Lord your God. It's simple. Why do I say it's simple? Because look at verse 8. And you shall write very plainly. God has made it very simple. And we should come to it simply with joy. On the stones, all the words of this law. There's nothing complicated about God's word. There's no mystery. Check this out. Check that. It's beautiful. God wants us to, to take this word and just literally allow the Holy Spirit to teach us, put it into our heart, and be refreshed and rejoice and be thankful and worship. And that's... That's what he's pointing, us, pointing out here. It's plain. Then Moses and all the priests and the Levites spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice. In other words, it's finally here. What they've been waiting for, right? All of that going into the promised land. You today, you are finally that people with your God or the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Now we're going to read about a series of blessings and curses as we go on. Look at verse 11. And Moses commanded the people on that same day, saying, They shall stand on Mount Gerizim. What's that word mean in the Hebrew? It's beautiful. To bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, right? The, the, the heads, I don't, obviously it's not all the people, it's the heads of those tribes, and those are the children of Leah and Rachel. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal, right? What does that mean again in the Hebrew? The barrenness. To curse Reuben, he was the first one to sin that way. Um, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levite shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel. Notice that he says, they're to yell. Cursed is the one who makes a carved or a molded image. It's an abomination to the Lord the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. So he's saying not only is it an abomination because they're putting together things that would represent God or reflect something that should be uh, worshipped like that. It's an abomination. He says, but they're doing it in secret. God sees in secret. He's talking about in their homes, in their houses, in places that maybe aren't in public, that they might set these, these pagan you know, I want you to think, think Hinduism for Buddhism. You go in some of the houses, and what do they have? Little statues of Buddha, right? And they've got them in their little, what they, we would term prayer closet. That's not their, in the area, and they have got like a little house they made them. Like it's a cute little dollhouse, right? And, and they put them in there, right? I don't, you know, th this, is, this is what it's talking about, that they, they worship in secret, right? This is what it's saying. And he's saying, look, I see in secret. There's nothing you're hiding from God. And all the people shall answer and say, so be it. Amen. That's what he it's what they're to say. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. The kids were all in on the first one. The second one, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right? No. They're like, Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. And all the people say, amen. And the kids are like, amen. Right? <laughs> Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. Remember, inheritance... Um, was by divine discretion. So this is important. They're not, to, they're not to move that, right? And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. I want you to think about this. God is very much concerned with compassion and kindness. Mercy that way, right? Um, now, I, I looked this up, just information, because, you, know, you know, you think about blindness, and it's, it's been decreasing, it's been decreasing from the 40s. And right now, it's, it used to be um, eight 
of every 10,000 people born were born with blindness. It is now three in every 10,000 people are born in blindness. It's interesting. I've often wondered if the Lord is allowing them to see so that they're without excuse. Is there an ability to see the word of God to be able to be mentioned? I don't know. Maybe it has nothing to do with it. But I wonder if we look at the inverse of that when we consider spiritual blindness. Are we seeing in Isaiah 5, evil being called good and good being called evil, right? It is interesting. And praise the Lord that we're seeing more, um, more help. God's brought technology and cataract surgery and things like that for a lot of people that normally would have gotten to that a certain age and experienced blindness. Praise God, he's brought in certain things like that to help cure that. And all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice do the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. And all the people say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father. Interesting, 20 through 23. He's going to take four different verses here to deal with sexual morality because he knows the carnality of man's heart and he's going to cover them all. It's not good enough just to, you know, he's going to cover them all here. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. He's talking about shame. And all the people shall say amen, and they're all yelling amen. Curse is the one who lies with any kind of animal. What do we call that? Bestiality. Very, very, you, you can go to, again, I've talked to you before about going to UPenn. They have kind of a museum books. You can go there, and you can read, and they describe and talk about the bestiality practices that were practiced in Canaan. It was very common. So God's warning them when you go in, they have nothing to do with this. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. He's talking about incest, right? And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly. There is no such thing. It's always before the eyes of God. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. What's he talking about? He's talking about a hitman, or he's talking about a hired assassin. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. And all the people say, Amen. You know what's interesting is that last verse 26, Paul quotes that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul goes back and quotes that, right? You know, I think we learn here that blessings can be related to cause and effect, but they're not limited to cause and effect. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. So now as we go into chapter 28, uh, you know what? Read ahead. Read ahead with the time we have left. I, I, I can't... I don't want to rush this, and 28 is quite a large chapter. He's going to, let me sum it up for you. He's going to go through, and he's now going to talk about the blessings, okay? And as you read through this, he's going to go through and describe curses of disobedience, and he's going to say, look, remember all the curses we just read? Chapter 28 is now going to go back and describe all the blessings that await Israel if they obey. Then what he does is takes the latter half, verse 15 to 19, and he compares them. He says, now, if you don't, he just went through the blessings. If you don't do these things, here's the corresponding curse. And he literally goes this way like that, all the way down, right? And then after he does that, he'll start to get to, like I said, I think it's around uh, verse 36, and this begins to move to prophecy. So when you read that, I want you to think about, if you got your Bible there still open, circle the word king in verse 36. He's talking about Saul. There was no king at that time. Who's the first king to be the... It would be Saul, right? That would be the first king. There wasn't even a king at this time that this was being written, right? But Saul was the third king. He says, well, when you sent... I'm, I'm about to start teaching it. I don't mean to do it. He, he's going to go through and he's going he's to... I love the word of God. I love Jesus. He's, so he's going to go through and he's going to describe and if he's going to say, look at these things. And then I want you to go on and find a book or uh, just look up the siege in Jerusalem that began right around 68... AD, and specifically what happens in AD 70. It's going to describe cannibalism 
And that's exactly what it happens. It's going to describe the attacks that came against Jerusalem four different times in the temple. Between the walls, the outside perimeter, they made their way in, the Romans, as they come in. And it's going to describe it in a way that you just, I mean, how many thousands of years? And it goes down just like we read in this account. It's supernatural. And God was warning them. And he's saying, if you don't obey, this is what's going to happen. And they wouldn't listen. They said, amen, so be it, amen. But while your lips are close to me, your heart is far from me. You know, that's one of the problems today. We can walk around memorizing every Bible verse in your Bible. You're, people, you meet people, they quote Bible like that. All, but there's no depth. There's no relationship. That's not what God's talking about. There's 18 inches between here and here. It's depth. He wanted Israel to have that depth. They heard it. They memorized it. They simply didn't walk it out in fruit and believe it.